Well, in my quest to preach from each and every book of the Bible, um, we have two books left to cover from which I've never yet preached to you. Joshua, to which we'll be coming, Lord willing, on the last Sunday morning of the year. And tonight, the book of Nahum. So I invite you to turn with me to that book, the Old Testament prophecy of Nahum, part of the Minor Prophets. And we will read in just a moment, beginning in chapter 1. The prophecy of Nahum is an announcement of God's judgment against the wicked and marauding Old Testament nation of Assyria, and particularly against its mighty capital city, namely Nineveh. And that prophecy of God's judgment begins like this in verse 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Fathers, we open up uh, this strong and um, difficult passage. We pray that you would speak to us about your power, about your holiness, about your kindness, and your plan for your people. Speak to us also tonight about your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Among all of the Old Testament prophetic books, only three of them are addressed primarily to recipients outside of the promised land. In other words, only three of them are written to an audience other than God's own chosen people. I'll leave you to discover on your own who... Uh, The third of those prophets is, but two of them, Jonah and Nahum, are addressed, their, their prophecies are addressed to the same city, namely Nineveh. And in both of these books, Nahum and Jonah, the message to Nineveh is essentially the same. Jonah's famous sermon, you remember, was entitled, Yet Forty Days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I think you can see and hear tonight that Nahum's message was almost identical to that, perhaps summed up there in verse 8. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That was the Lord's word through Nahum to Nineveh. 
And when we delve into the character of the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh, we start to understand why both of these prophets felt compelled to speak the way that they did, why God was so angry with Assyria and with her capital city. The nation of Assyria, with its capital in Nineveh, was the great terror of the Middle East in the 7 and 600s B.C. From modern-day Iran and Iraq up into what we now call Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey, and then down through Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, and all the way as far south as Ethiopia, the kings and the armies of Assyria sacked cities and deposed kings and slaughtered and starved and deported civilians and pillaged and plundered anything of value on their way through. It's an awful awful scourge on the Middle East, this nation of Assyria. The closest comparison that probably would make sense to our psyches is to think of the Assyrians as a kind of ancient version of Nazi Germany, just running roughshod over all of their neighbors with the greatest of cruelties. And so we understand why both Jonah and Nahum would come preaching that in God's judgment, Nineveh would be overthrown. But there's something peculiar about these two prophecies against the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria, namely that though both Jonah and Nahum's messages are virtually the same, those messages were given some 100 or 150 years apart from one another. Jonah came preaching yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and about 100 or 150 years later, Nahum came preaching that same thing. And the reason I say that's peculiar is because didn't Nineveh repent when Jonah came preaching to them? They did, didn't they? And marvelously so, as Mark pointed out to us a few weeks ago. From the king down to the commoner, down to the peasant, and even to the very cattle in the stalls, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah in sackcloth and in ashes. And when God saw their penitence, he relented concerning the calamity which he had declared would come upon them, and he did not do it, Jonah chapter 3. It was one of the great turnings to God in the history of the world. It was one of the great acts of mercy that we read about on behalf of the Lord in all of the scriptures, Nineveh's repentance. And yet here we are tonight in the book of Nahum, only a few generations after that, and God is having to pronounce judgment on Nineveh again for the very same sorts of cruelty and power lust that were their sins in the days of Jonah. In fact, if you look at an Old Testament timeline, you'll discover that even before Nahum's day, even before these words were written, which we've read tonight, Indeed, only within a generation or two from Jonah's preaching at Nineveh, the city had reverted back to its pagan, violent ways. Within just a generation or two. In other words, the grandchildren, maybe even the children of those people who repented at the preaching of Jonah were the very people who laid siege to the Israelite capital in the 720s B.C. and starved out the Israelites inside and ransacked the city and carried the survivors into exile, never to return. 
And they continued those sorts of campaigns in city after city all across the Middle East and into northern Africa until in Nahum's day, God's patience was at its breaking point. So the book of Jonah presents an amazing turn of events in Nineveh for the better. But the book of Nahum, just a couple of generations later, a century or so later, I should say, presents an amazing turn of events in Nineveh for the worse. And what I want to say as we consider the Ninevites tonight is that the city of Nineveh teaches us a great deal about mankind. That's the first of two major themes tonight. The difference between Nineveh at the end of the book of Jonah and Nineveh in the beginning of this prophecy of Nahum teaches us a great deal about mankind. Specifically, the history of Nineveh reminds us just how quickly the spiritual temperature can change in a nation or a city or among a people. It's like we say about the weather in Cincinnati, right? The weather is always changing, and sometimes that can be said about the spiritual weather in certain places too, can't it? Think about it, first of all, in the book of Jonah again. One moment, Nineveh is terrorizing the Middle East without a care in the world and without a single thought toward the God of heaven and earth, the God who made them. And then Jonah comes to town and goes on a three-day preaching tour, proclaiming a message that his image consultants would have poo-pooed very quickly. And yet, the people responded, didn't they? And in an instant, in a marvelous foreshadowing of Bethlehem, might I add, peasants and kings and animals are all bowed in the dust before the Lord, worshiping him. And that's hope-giving, isn't it? Who knows when you may share the gospel with someone thinking this is just another one of those times where I'm sowing a seed or planting uh, a little thought in their mind. And yet you share the gospel with them and you call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly they burst into tears and get on their faces and pray and turn to the Lord and they're never the same. That's what happened in Jonah's day. The spiritual temperature can change that quickly. Doesn't always change that quickly, but God can move in power anytime He chooses. How quickly things changed at the preaching of Jonah. But here tonight, and more to the point of this prophecy in the book of Nahum, we see that the same principle is true in the reverse as well. Within just a generation or two after the great revival in Jonah's day, Nineveh was as wicked as ever. She had returned to her old. Paganism, as we see in verse 14, her idols and her images and her gods. She had returned to her old cruelty, sacking cities and starving people to her old lust for power and so on. Within just a generation or two, all of the positive gains for godliness that were made in Jonah's days, it would seem were lost almost completely to Nineveh. It's the same thing, the same sort of spiritual cold front that's come over our country, isn't it? Nineveh, it sounds to me, is a lot like the United States of America. This continent, 200, 250 years ago, was the scene of some of the greatest gospel revivals the world has ever seen, known as the First Great Awakening with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and then 
the second great awakening all throughout the Northeast. And yet, though tens of thousands of people came to Christ in those days when the country's population was much smaller than it is now, though vast amounts of our population turned to the Lord, look at us now. The world's chief exporter of pornography, the world's chief exporter of pseudo-Christian heresy and religious claptrap, with something like half of our homes broken, murdering one one million babies in the womb every year, and with scenes like Newtown and Portland and Aurora and Tucson and Virginia Tech happening ever more frequently. And all of this within just a few generations from perhaps the greatest evangelical awakening this hemisphere has ever seen. And all of it within just a generation or two from a time period in this country where the things I've just enumerated would have been absolutely unthinkable. That quickly, the temperature can change. That quickly, America, like Assyria, has almost completely forgotten God. Now, I know that we still like to talk about God when a tragedy happens, and that's been the case this week. And we like to talk about good and evil when things like Newtown take place. But I read an article this week by a man called Doug Wilson, and he pointed out something that I thought was very helpful. Namely, that we've eliminated from the national consciousness the God and the biblical standards that make words like good and evil even intelligible. Here's what he says. It is not possible to build a culture around a denial of God-given standards and then arbitrarily reintroduce those standards at your convenience whenever you need a word like evil to describe what just happened. Those words cannot just be whistled up. If we have banished them and their definitions and every possible support for them, we need to reckon with the fact that they are now gone. Wilson is right, I think. Within just a couple of generations, we've gotten to the place where unless something really bad happens, the sense of right and wrong, good and evil, godliness and ungodliness are in our country gone because our reverence for God is, by and large, in this country gone. And it all happened so quickly, just like in Nineveh. And that brings me to say something else about mankind as we compare Jonah and Nahum. Not only can the spiritual temperature nosedive very rapidly, but because it can, every generation must repent and believe for itself. I think that's one of the great lessons when you compare Jonah and Nahum. Every generation must repent and believe for itself. It's folly for me, in other words, to assume that because I believe, my children necessarily will believe. Or to assume that because my children perhaps grow up and believe, that my grandchildren will follow suit. It doesn't work that way, does it? It's not automatic. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not passed down genetically. If that were the case, the book of Nahum would never have needed to have been written, would it? The people of Nineveh would have continued on serving the Lord and trusting the Lord and repenting of their sins like we see in Jonah, but they didn't. If, if the Holy Spirit was passed down genetically, then, well, today the nation of Iraq, the ancestors of the Ninevites, would be a Christian oasis in the Middle East. But it doesn't work that way, does it? And the book of Nahum reminds us of that. 
Each generation of Ninevites were born in sin, just like each of us. And therefore, each generation of Ninevites needed to repent and believe for itself, just like each generation today. And obviously, sadly, the generations who arose in Nineveh after Jonah's great preaching did not do that. And the same could happen, children, to you. And I want it to be a warning to you, children, all the way there in the back. I hope you're listening tonight. Just because your mom and dad love the Lord and serve his church and know his salvation does not guarantee that you will actually grow up and be like them. You were born with a sinful heart just like the Ninevites, and you must therefore repent and believe yourself. You must decide for the Lord yourself. You must ask Jesus to save you yourself. And some of you children should do that without any further delay so that you don't grow up and become like the Ninevites in your actions, so that your life of sin will be cut short, and so that maybe things will change in our land for the better, perhaps just as quickly as they've changed for the worse, just within a generation or two. That could happen. The spiritual temperature can change so rapidly. Therefore, every generation and every person must repent and believe for him or herself. And there's one more corollary before we leave this point about what Nineveh has to teach us about mankind. Namely, that if every generation must repent and believe for itself, then every parent and grandparent, too, must evangelize his or her own children. In other words, just as the upcoming generation is not to presume upon its own godliness, neither are their parents. It's not enough to bring your children to church and to teach them right from wrong and for them to know that you repented. Some of those things surely must have happened in Nineveh. The children saw their parents repent. The grandparents, the grandchildren saw how different their grandparents were. But it's not enough for them to see it in you. If they weren't natural-born sinners, it would be enough just to teach them right from wrong and bring them to church. But they are natural-born sinners, aren't they? Just like David. Our children are conceived in iniquity. They're born in sin. And so all the religious and moralistic teaching in the world will not take sufficient hold in their hearts unless, by the power of the gospel, God takes out the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. And he does that through the word of the gospel. Therefore, the most important thing we must do for our children, parents and grandparents, is to proclaim the gospel to them. Not just John 3.16 day after day, though that wouldn't hurt, but opening up the whole counsel of God to them through regular family worship, family devotionals, and showing them how the whole message of the Bible is one long demonstration of mankind's sinfulness and his need of redemption and one running picture and prophecy and then fulfillment of how God worked all history together to bring us a redeemer in Bethlehem and to purchase our pardon and our new life at Calvary and then calling them based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to repent and believe. That is the message foreshadowed and presented and proclaimed all throughout the Bible. That is the message which alone can change the human heart. And because every generation is born in sin, every generation needs that message preached afresh.
The spiritual temperature in a nation or a city or a family can drop very quickly. Therefore, every generation must repent and believe for itself. And if they are to do so, every generation must hear the preaching, not just of religion and morality, not just of a good example in their elders, but every generation, natural-born sinners that they are, not able to be moral, not able to follow the example on their own, must hear the gospel of Christ. Born without sin, dying for sinners, and rising from the dead so that we might actually walk in newness of life. This is the message that changes the character of the human heart. This is the message that creates true morality in our souls. And who better to preach it to the rising generation than their own parents and grandparents. And I urge you, parents and grandparents, to do so. You cannot make your children believe. I understand that. And sometimes, in spite of all of your efforts to the contrary, young people still walk away from God no matter how often they've heard the gospel. But you must give them every opportunity to hear it by regularly showering upon them the good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. The Christmas season provides a wonderful opportunity to begin that, doesn't it? If you've stopped doing that with your children, regularly sharing the gospel, reading the scriptures to them, or if you've never done it, the Christmas season provides a wonderful opportunity to sit down as a family each evening with a Bible and a hymn book and to proclaim to your children and with your children the excellencies of Jesus. And then the new year provides splendid motivation to take that Christmas pattern and implement it all year round. Your children will not grow up godly simply because they were born in a Christian home. They won't become Christian simply by rubbing off from you to them. You must proclaim the gospel to them in addition to all of your great example. Lest having no gospel, they have no new heart. And having no new heart, they become and your family becomes like the city of Nineveh completely pagan again within only a generation or two. Now all of that we glean just from comparing the prophecies of Jonah and Nahum, and we haven't even begun to look at the text that we read in chapter 1. So let's turn there now for the second half of what I'd like to say to you. If a comparison of Jonah and Nahum teaches us a great deal about mankind, then in the second place, Nahum chapter 1 teaches us a great deal about the Lord. Nahum chapter 1 teaches us a great deal about the Lord. You may have noticed the phrase, the Lord is, being repeated like a refrain in these verses. Listen to it. Verse 2, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Again, verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord is. Those words, that phrase, is really the theme of this first chapter, especially of verses 2 through 8. Those seven verses, incidentally, are an acrostic the first word of each line beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet and proceeding in alphabetical order. 
And the whole theme of Nahum's acrostic poem is to speak to us concerning the character of God, to tell us who the Lord is. And so I say that Nahum 1, particularly the first half of it, teaches us a great deal about the Lord. And that's so good, isn't it, incidentally? Against the backdrop of what we've just pinned up, against the portrait of how fickle and failing mankind is, it's good to know whom the Lord is. When we look at the world with our eyes fixed simply on humanity, it can be a dreadful, depressing portrait, can't it? We were reminded that again starkly last Friday. But above all the madness and the sadness and the sin of mankind stands the majestic, glorious, unchanging Lord of the scriptures, whose words and whose intervention and whose character put to right all of our confusion and all of our failure. So let's allow Nahum to tell us who the Lord is tonight. First, we read in verse 2 that the Lord is a jealous God. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Jealous. Jealous, in this case, for his own glory in Nineveh. For his own glory. God wasn't just angry, in other words, because the Ninevites had done some horribly wicked things to their neighbors. He was that, of course. But he was also jealous like a husband whose wife has committed adultery against him. Nineveh hadn't just sinned against the surrounding nations. They had sinned against the Lord, and they had turned from the Lord. That's what was really going on in Nineveh. The people there weren't just murderers, but before they were murderers, they were spiritual harlots. Verse 14, serving idols and images and other gods in the place of the one true God. That was their fundamental problem. That was the root of all their cruelty towards mankind, their rejection of the one true God. That's the root of all cruelty today, isn't it? When people reject the one true God, cruelty ensues, sometimes in greater degree, sometimes in lesser. But the first problem is not the cruelty towards one another. The first problem is that we reject God. Our first problem is not horizontal, it's vertical. And God is jealous for that vertical relationship. That's what he's telling us there in verse 2. He is a jealous God. And he was jealous for Nineveh, for their hearts and for their worship. He wouldn't have been satisfied, in other words, if they just stopped ravishing and ravaging their neighbors, but then continued giving themselves to wooden idols. Would God be satisfied with that? No, God didn't just want Nineveh's good behavior on a horizontal plane. He wanted their hearts on a vertical plane. And that's a good reminder to us. We may have things a lot better than Nineveh on the horizontal plane. We may not have behaved like the Ninevites behaved. We have not behaved like the gunmen in Newtown, Connecticut did. We've not done many of the wicked things, perhaps, that the people do in the world around us. And we praise God for that. But that's not all God wants from us. Simply that we not be the worst of the worst in harming our neighbors. We can be the most upstanding citizens in the world and yet still be idolaters at heart. 
And God wants more from us, and he wants more for us than that. He wants our hearts and our worship for him. He wants us to cleave to him like a faithful bride cleaves to her husband. The Lord is a jealous God. But we also read in verse 2 that he is a jealous and avenging God. An avenging God. God was not just jealous because of Nineveh's domestic idolatry, but also because of their wicked foreign policy. And particularly, he was jealous because of the way Nineveh had run roughshod over his people, his Old Testament bride, Israel. He was jealous for his own name, but he was also jealous for his people. And that jealousy, both for his name and for his people, led to his vengeance on the people of Nineveh. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Do you think God wants us to hear that? Avenging, wrathful, avenging, wrathful, vengeance. He says it five times in one verse. And how important this is to remember that God is an avenging God. God hates sin. He despises and abhors sin. And when a sinner remains impenitent, the Lord takes vengeance on him. That was true in Nineveh. Within just a few decades of Nahum's writing, the Babylonians arose as the new world superpower, and they swept into Assyria and sacked Nineveh and took her lands from her and treated her just like she had treated the nations all around her because a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. It was certainly true this past Friday morning of that young man who did what he did in that school building in Connecticut. When he finally turned his weapon on himself, he awakened to find himself standing before a jealous and avenging God. And without any attempt to be insensitive towards his perishing soul, there is in this passage, I think, meant to be some solace in knowing that sinners do not escape God's wrath, even when they escape wrath in this world. But let me remind you that God is jealous and avenging not just towards murderers like the Ninevites or people in our day, that God is jealous and avenging toward all sin and all unrepentant sinners. You may have not done what someone else has done, but you've done enough, and so have I, to warrant God's vengeance, to bring down his judgment on your head. God will not sweep our sins under the rug. That's what we read in verse 3. He'll by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Either we lay hold of Christ and find that he became the guilty for us and that he was punished for us, or we dig in our heels and we refuse to repent and we find ourselves, verse 3, on the receiving end of God's whirlwind and storm. And if we do, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? The Lord is avenging and wrathful, verse 2. 
Notice also, though, that Nahum emphasizes that the Lord, verse 3, is great in power. The Lord is slow to anger, we'll come back to that, and great in power. And then Nahum gives us a wonderful illustration, one illustration at least, of God's power, beginning at the end of verse 3 when he says, In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. That is a display of God's great power, is it not, in nature. And of course, The main reason Nahum recounts God's incredible power over creation is to emphasize that God can wield that power to judge wicked nations like Assyria. Anytime he wished, God could send upon Nineveh storms, verse 3, or drought, verse 4, or earthquakes, verse 5, or all sorts of things in between, all to serve his purposes of wrath and judgment. The Lord is great in power. And we should note that well and file it back under the category of God's vengeance. But having dwelt on God's vengeance, just notice what this subset now says about his power itself, about his sovereignty, about his absolute control of creation. Be it something as great as the wind, verse 3, or as small as the dust. Whether it be the seas, verse 4, or the rivers, whether it be the majestic mountains in verse 5, or the delicate flower blossoms at the end of verse 4. God has authority over it all. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus said, apart from your heavenly Father. And we can say here, verse 4, not a poinsettia blossom withers apart from him, and not a whirlwind touches down on the land and rips through a county apart from his sovereign control. Just marvel at that for a moment. Every molecule and every cell in the world is equipped with voice recognition software, as it were, tuned perfectly to leap or to lie still or to wither and die at the Lord's command and at his command alone. Marvel at a God like that. Nahum begs us. And he begs us to marvel at a God like that so that we won't go on sinning against him. The Lord is jealous. He is avenging. He is great in power. But also, mercifully, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger. What a wonderful word that is in the midst of of a chapter that is mostly about his anger, to hear that though his anger is real and powerful and like a fire, he is, in that anger, slow. What a wonderful word written to a group of people who deserved his anger so richly to hear that God is slow to pour it out. Read it again. The Lord is slow to anger. Don't you think those words must have been placed here as a hint to the Ninevites? 
Remember, this book is written to the Ninevites. God is telling them, I'm slow to anger. Yes, he's telling them, I'm going to overthrow Nineveh. I'm going to wipe you off the map. There's no escaping from me. But in the middle of all that, he tells them, but remember, I'm slow to anger. I think that's a hint to them that if they would repent, if they would stop their warring ways, if they would release their captives, if they would smash their idols and turn to the Lord, then the scene from Jonah 3 could repeat itself. That it could be said of their generation too. Then the Lord relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. I think that's what Nahum is saying in verse 3. And indeed, the Lord did wait several decades from the time of Nahum's prophecy before the Babylonians swept in and sacked Nineveh. He gave them time. He was slow to pour out his wrath. He was patient toward them, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And isn't that how he is with us in the gospel? Doesn't the gospel of Jesus Christ say to us that the Lord is slow to anger? That he wants to forgive sinners? That he's willing to wait for us and woo us and draw us with his loving kindness? The gospel does teach us that the Lord is slow to anger, doesn't it? This is the gospel. And the gospel also says that not only is the Lord slow to anger, verse 3, but that he is great in power. Not only is he willing to forgive sinners, he's able to forgive sinners. He has the power to forgive sinners. For instance, far greater, I think, than the power God displays in the whirlwinds and the earthquakes here in verses 3 through 5 is the power that he displayed at the cross when he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The power of his will to send his son to die for us, the power to make us righteous in Christ is a great power. And even greater than the power of his wrath is the power of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And the same power working in us to make us utterly new creatures when we are in Christ Jesus. The gospel is all about a God who is slow to anger and great in power. Nahum 1.3 is the gospel. It's about a God who's willing and a God who in the cross is able to forgive us to the uttermost, slow to anger and great in power. And even now, he's patiently waiting He's holding back his anger, not wishing for any of us to perish, but for all of us, children, and any adults here tonight who may not know the Lord, to come to repentance. And we must, each one of us, take him up on his patience. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. That is a word of hope to the sinner. But there's also a word of hope here in Nahum chapter 1 to the saint And we find that finally in verse 7. Verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. That's a word for the saint. The Lord is a stronghold. In the day of trouble. 
This was a necessary word, incidentally, for Nahum to slide in for the encouragement of God's people because they were living, remember, right smack in the middle of this empire that was about to be washed away in the tide of God's wrath. And living where God's wrath was going to be poured out, well, might they wonder if Assyria is sacked, if the streets, as we can read in chapter 3, are going to be filled with horsemen and spears and, quote, countless dead bodies, what will become of us who live here? The Babylonians, who would be the agents of God's justice, they wouldn't care who is a true blue Assyrian and who is a deported alien simply trying to make a life in a foreign land. They wouldn't know the difference between an Israelite and an Assyrian. But, verse 7, the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord knows his saints, and his eye is always on them. And in the midst of all the whirlwind and the storm, in the midst of the mountains falling into the heart of the seas and the rivers drying up, and all that God can bring upon a sinful nation, God will be there for his people, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Whether the trouble be the invasion of the Babylonians or the persecution that will eventually come on the American church, or whether the trouble is simply just the mess and the heartache and the disappointment that you are dealing with in these very days. Are you in a day of trouble, to use Nahum's word? Even in a small crowd like this, there are some of us who find ourselves in a day of trouble, in a day where everything seems out of control. But in that day, as in Nahum's day, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I love that last sentence of verse 7. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum is not just saying that God has a heavenly roll sheet so that in the midst of this wild world, he has a little book that tells him which people are his and which people aren't. He does have a book like that. But the knowing that Nahum refers to here is far more intimate than that. It's not just that the Lord has your name on a list somewhere that he can look up in an index, but that the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. He knows the hairs on our heads. He knows, Jesus said, our needs before we ever ask him. He knows every desire and every dream and every ache and every fear that is in your heart. And he knows every detail of the day of your trouble even better than you know it yourself. The Lord knows exactly what you're going through and exactly what you need right now. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. Are you taking refuge in him? We all go through times of trouble, don't we? And we all seek refuge in the day of trouble. But do we seek refuge? Are you seeking refuge today in him? Or in someone else. Perhaps here the word of the psalmist would be helpful to us. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. No. 
It's the Lord, verse 7, who is good. It's the Lord who is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And it is the Lord who knows those who take refuge in him. So run to him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and they're safe. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord, verse 2. But verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And to his people, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him.